0: everybody. This is Mark Carrigg, Senior Writer at The Athletic, joined by Andy McCullough, also a Senior Writer at The Athletic, and you're listening to Beyond the Scrum. And we are joined today by a special guest. Uh, you know, in his past life, had worked at the Major League Baseball Players Association. Now, he is currently the Undergraduate Sport Management Program Director at Adelphi University on Long Island. He's also president of his own consulting company, PowerX Communications, we're joined today by Greg
1: Boris. What's up, Greg? Hey, Mark. Hey, Andy. How you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Great yeah, to hear no, your voice. thanks voices.
0: for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming coming uh, on, and, and it's good to hear from you too. It's been a while. Um, yeah. You know, the, you came to mind this week, the biggest week in baseball, right, Andy? Um, <laughs> 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 this week it's um, the biggest week in baseball. This is the biggest week in baseball. Like uh obviously a lot of stuff going on with the labor situation and you know it's turned into a bit of a uh you know, a mud wrestling match in full public view. And uh you know, given your history, Greg, I, I was just curious like to get right into it here. What's your read on this thing? How would they get here?
1: That's a great question. Uh And you have to kind of know the history of the parties to understand, you know, to to borrow a phrase, a baseball phrase, right? You know, deja vu all over again. Uh, Although it did seem like for many, many years, uh, we were past this type of public airing of dirty laundry, so to speak, and uh, on some levels, it's disappointing now from my vantage point, having been in it for almost two decades, but having stepped aside, uh, I like, like you guys and most of the fans, you know, probably saw as we moved through the pandemic, which is still the most important topic and issue here, uh, hasn't gone away. Uh, despite the negotiation outcome, you know, there's still a big hurdle to overcome on the health and science aspects of this. Uh, but parking that aside, you know, I think from you know my marketing and communications, public relations hat, you know, it seemed like this unbelievable opportunity was evolving in front of the sport to be the only sport out there playing live and doing so or debuting on 4th of July, right? You couldn't script it any better than that. Uh, baseball, apple pie, America, 4th of July, you know the, the solution to everybody's solitude and, and confinement. And then uh, I think the parties saw that too or baseball saw that, but then it wrangled down and got boggled down in the economic aspects and impact of uh, what it would take to play during the pandemic without fans in the stadiums. And that's a huge piece of this. This is a sport unlike the NFL, for example, uh, which generates majority, vast majority of its revenue from TV, you know, they could lock the doors uh, entirely. You know, the the live gate for the NFL is the cherry on top of the Sunday. It's the reverse in baseball. You know, some teams uh, rely upon that live gate revenue uh, as a major source or major portion of their revenue. I would say, based on information that I you know, had seen over the years at, uh, at the MLBPA, you know, some clubs rely upon perhaps, or generate as much as maybe 60%, if not more of their overall revenue from the live gate in, the, in what it brings in. So I think there are some owners who probably looked at this and said, we don't wanna play. You know, unless we can get the labor, which is the biggest cost at a drastic discount, we don't wanna play. And on the player's side, they want to play, uh, they'll play as much as they can, because obviously the more they play, the more they'll get paid, but players do want to play under any circumstances. But the one thing that the players are bound by, it's that uh, the guaranteed contract, you know, players, you know, uh, learn from the first day, they step into uh, a clubhouse in spring training and hear their first union meeting, right? The sanctity of the guaranteed contract. And, you know, once you sign that deal, you will never ever uh, take less than what your contract provides you, uh, without getting something of greater or equal value in return. Uh, so the players, I think, you know, are bound by history and bound by a labor agreement that they don't want to damage, uh, and only want to play for a pr- prorated portion of their salaries without taking a discount. And you know, I think we're, we're looking at polar opposites philosophically from the owner's position and the players' position, and that's why we're at a stalemate.
2: You know, it's interesting. I mean, baseball had, uh, the, you know, the the initial labor history of the sport is obviously very rancorous, with you know all the stoppages in the the '80s, and of course the you know the the stoppage in '94. Um, but really, for about twenty-five years—well, no, I should say for about twenty years—there seemed like there was pretty, uh, pretty steady labor. Piece and it seemed like the system worked. The owners had their um, franchise values raise, they made money, you know, through all these different revenue streams. Players got to free agency and they got big contracts. And you know, there was, there would always be like, you know, look how much this the best player in the NFL just got paid. Now, look how much this third starter in baseball got paid. And the numbers weren't even close. When, from your perspective, did this really start to change? And, and how did it get to the point where the two sides seem to just be talking past each other right now?
1: Well, I think to your to your point, yes, uh, labor peace is never the objective. I know from the union's perspective and I'm sure from the ownership's perspective, it's not labor peace. You want to negotiate agreements that both parties can live with. Uh, it's not to say that either party will be 100 percent happy with every agreement. Uh, but at the end of the day, they walk out of the room and knowing that, you know, they gave a little, got a little, and they can live with that. Uh, it took a long time, as you indicated, to get to that um, philosophy between the bargaining parties, you know, meaning there were lockouts and there were strikes and there were real big battles and squabbles. And, you know, the last, you know, the final one in 94 that cost the World Series, the the last, real attempt to try to force a salary cap down the throats of the players and the players wanted to hold fast to the free market system. You know, I think given the length of that strike, 232 days and the damage it brought the sport, that was kind of the watershed moment uh, for the sports labor movement where the owners finally realized, you know what, we can't break the union. We just can't. So now we have to sit down and negotiate a system that allows us to do the things we want to do. The players made some concessions, the owners gave some things uh, to the players, but what they did uh, in that uh, that agreement coming out of that strike was they finally negotiated the parameters of a system that both sides could live with, with tweaking a little here and there, meaning revenue sharing and the, and the luxury slash competitive balance tax. So those systems were implemented and then it was fine tuned through the three or four negotiations and then Coming out of the last negotiation, uh, things changed philosophically mm-hmm. in the front offices in terms of player evaluation, player talent. No longer was it the eye test. It was all now data and analytics, uh, long-term contracts, older players, uh, estimating that a player or a pitcher only has so many throws in his arm and this, that, and the other thing. So the veterans, veteran players who were playing under this system that their uh, predecessors had bargained for, negotiated in good faith, uh, gave up things, or they currently give up things in the early portions of their career, right? They'll play for the minimum for three years, take it to arbitration the next two years, and then say, okay, I've put in my time, now I'm going for that long-term guaranteed contract that's gonna set me up. Uh, I'm gonna make up for what I may have left on the table. And two or three years ago, those deals disappeared. Uh, very few players are offered those long-term, long-term contracts. Uh, you know, Top-level, top-name free agents uh, were left without teams, without offers, or receiving similar offers from teams to teams. So I think the uh, – and I'm not, I'm not here to judge you know, either party or say anybody did anything wrong. It was just now the way the system and the rules were implemented may not have been consistent with the spirit of that agreement. And I think that damaged the players and hurt the players. Uh, to the point where they like, okay, we have to find a way to change this, to change this dynamic somehow. Uh, they'll only be able to do that through collective bargaining. But I can think, to, you know, to answer your question, that has bruised the relationship. That has hurt that momentum that they had. Right. It's not to say that during those 20 years they didn't have fights. Uh, you just didn't read about them. You just didn't hear about them. Uh, you come out of the room, you shake hands, and uh, you know, you agree. You agree to disagree. You go your own way and move on, but that last, you know, that free agency glitch, I think, really damaged the parties where they thought, okay, you know, you're you're not doing this in the spirit of things, but you're doing this economically. So again, you reminded us this is a business, so you know what, we've got to treat it like a business too, and that's why the players are in this position, saying, you know what, we're not going to give in on the guaranteed contract portion of this. We can't, we can't throw away uh, what hundreds, if not thousands, of players sacrificed for. uh, to get us these guaranteed contracts because we make this concession now, who's to say, knowing the history, knowing the level of trust or mistrust, that they won't find another way to raise this issue again and ask us to take more pay cuts or, or diminish the, the strength and the power within the guaranteed contracts. So I do think from a player's perspective here, they are, they are kind of bound right. by not moving off their prorate, uh, prorated right. uh, agreement. I just don't think that's something they can move.
0: You know, it's funny, I don't think people get that part of it as far as how concessions work. Because I I was doing, it was an unrelated story a while ago, and and I never realized this, but um, players used to reach arbitration sooner. And I think it was a negotiation in the earlier mid-80s that changed that, that pushed it back a year and they've never gotten it back. There, you know, There's a Super 2 provision, and that was sort of an attempt to get that back, but never really gotten it back. So once something goes away, it goes away. And kind of informs how we see yes. the party's work now. But I, I wonder this. I've always wondered this. And, and I wonder this even after reading Lords of the Realm for the first time. Uh, is there ever any way that this thing becomes a partnership rather than what it's always been, which is this adversarial relationship in which both parties seem to treat it like there has to be an absolute winner and loser in, in these things. It, it, it just never feels like a partnership. Do you think you can ever get there? And if so, how, how do you begin moving toward an actual partnership?
1: <laughs> that, that's a great question. Uh, and that comes up and you'd like to think And on the surface, you know, in theory, it sounds like a great idea, like, why won't it, or why couldn't it be a partnership? Uh, I don't think the players or owners would want to see this as a partnership, depending on how you define that. If you're talking partners and you have kind of even Steven in this arrangement, um, that's a different sense of saying, hey, we're going to have a cap and we're going to give you a percentage of revenue because we want you to be tied and in this. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know if you could ever get to a partnership because if somebody's going to pay $2, $3, three billion dollars for a team, I don't think they want partners. Right? <laughs> so uh, they'll, they'll, what 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 they'll want to do is they'll want to pay the talent, right? The product is you know is the players. Uh, it's the most expensive line item in their budget, so they're going to want to do whatever they can at every opportunity to lower that number. Uh, that's what's going to increase their profit margin greater than any other business decision they make. Uh, I just don't see how it could become a partnership without the players trying to match what the owner's stake is in terms of equity. Uh, so if a franchise is up for sale and it goes for $2 billion and the players chip in a billion and buy it with a partner who's an owner, then yeah, you're a partner. Uh, but I don't know if those types of relationships will ever all, And I'm not one I don't buy into, you know, the salary cap system as saying there's a partnership there because there isn't a partnership there. Uh, you know, we talk about the revenue split in sports, what the labor gets and what the owners get. And in those cap sports, uh, you guys know uh, probably better than anybody. Uh, you're not talking about a 50 50 split in total gross revenue. You're talking about a 50 50 split on defined revenue. Uh, Which means in each of these leagues, again, the the words are the same, but in each league, the definitions are very different. You know, so in football, they have football revenue. In hockey, they have hockey revenue. In basketball, they have basketball revenue. And these teams make a lot of money through some other revenue sources that clearly are tied and generated because they own the teams, but they're carved out of that partnership. So the players don't get that. They only get their 50% from what they've defined as that sports, sport-related uh, revenue. And it's very complicated. Uh, and that's why forever the the, uh, the baseball player's position is, we don't need to know your business. At the end of the day, we really don't need to know your books. Let's just do a free market system because our history tells us traditionally, I'm not saying it's that today, but traditionally for every dollar Major League Baseball brought in, 50, per, 50 cents would be spent on players in some form or another. Uh, as it relates to the luxury tax and the use of the money and who's might hide hide money. The owner's approach was, the player's approach was always, that's an ownership issue. Each owner has to take care of uh, making sure that their peers, their fellow owners are abiding by the revenue distribution rules and the luxury tax rules and all of that. Players didn't wanna bother with that. Just give us a free market system, no caps. Yeah, there are some limitations here in terms of taxes and whatever, but the union's philosophy has always been they shouldn't agree to a provision that allows an owner to not write a check that he otherwise would willing or willingly write. Um, and so that's what the union has never wanted to cross that threshold, never be the ones to put in a rule that says, you know what, we know you want to pay us X, but we're going to say you can pay us X minus something. Uh, and so the players believe in the free market system underneath the sanctity of that guaranteed contract. we make an agreement that's what you're gonna pay me
2: and and it is in a way it's kind of remarkable how I mean I remember you know my first few years covering baseball my first year on the beat was 2010 and it was a time when guys were you know getting paid in their 30s and you know the big free agent contracts were still pretty bountiful and you know I remember covering teams where like the the team's union rep would be chosen as like a hazing ritual. They'd put it on, you know, like a, like a rookie and say like, you know, Oh, you're in charge of it. Rook. You know, I, I mean, there would be, you know, the union would come in during spring training and talk to the players. And for about three days, every player would be like Eugene V Debs and be like, Hey, come here, come here. Do you know how much we get paid for spring training games? And be like, you don't get paid anything. And they're like, yeah. Can you believe that? And like, Yes, the, you know, and then two days later, you'd be like, "Hey, so like, are you upset about that still?" And They'd be like, "What are you talking about, man? They, you know, I'm, I'm worried about. I gotta start in two days, and it just seemed like players were really willing to kind of go along to get along as long as the market sort of functioned in a way that rewarded them, and 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 so I'm curious, just like how you sort of maintain awareness of these things when you have guys who are kind of siloed in, you know, their day-to-day stuff and just aren't thinking about, you know, these, the, the labor issues in in kind of the nuanced manner that's necessary in order to stay even with the owners.
1: Well, it, through my experience, you know, there are, there are players who clearly want to play baseball, right? They're not, they don't want to go into the weeds on the labor side, uh, but they will. Uh, when they have to but on each club you know whether it's a you know you termed it a hazing thing you know tab the young guy uh, but in most of those cases there's also a veteran there who's been that guy uh, but but the it's not necessarily a hazing it's the veterans way of saying kid this is a business and you better go to a union meeting because you need to have your eyes open uh, to know how the system works so you know it's it's uh, you know having young players become the player reps or alternate reps it's not uh, uh, a shirking of responsibility. It's one generation saying to the next generation, "You know what? We work really hard to provide you this environment, and it's going to be up to you to provide it for the next generation. So you better attend one of these meetings to learn your business, because at the end of the day,
2: that's because good it is like because it like is a that. business. Is good.
1: And and they do know it. But a majority <laughs> of the players, you're right. You know, they want to play ball. Uh, You know, I have a union rep and he's going to tell me, you know, what I need to know when I need to know it. And if I have a question, I know where to go. The union has done a great job over the past, you know, 10 years uh, of having a lot of former players on staff and a lot of uh, investment in player relations activities, whether it's through technology or face to face confrontations and meetings. Uh, So the dialogue and the communication channels are wide open. Uh, but at the end of the day, majority of the players don't want to worry about the labor issues. They don't want to worry about the economic uh, issues a- of the sport. But you know, they are educated and informed and told about the system and how it relates to every single one of them at their phase of their career. You know, the zero to three, what are your rights? You know, the arbitration guys, if you're heading toward arbitration, you better open your eyes. You better wake up to the system and how it works and how you can participate in the system. And then clearly... Uh, you know, the free agent uh, aspects of it too. So although majority of the guys may not go around singing the, uh, uh, the communal union thing, I guarantee you each and every one of those players yeah. knows his own circumstance at his particular point in his career.
0: Kind of going off of that, Greg, I, I when I first started covering baseball is about when Andy did, you know, a, little, a few years before that, but pretty much the same period of time. So after a couple of years, I'd been covering guys that had lived through 94, 95. And and now they were sort of at the tail ends uh, of their careers. And something I heard from them a lot, uh, and I remember it vividly, was that they were kind of concerned. They would look around the room, see guys that were the generation after them that had never known a strike or work stoppage and any of that hardship. And they would look at me and say, you know— because they don't remember that stuff, I don't think they realize how important it is to be involved, and it's going to get to the point where, because they're not as involved as they should be, they're going to have this rude awakening where they have to be, and they're not going to know what to do. And I heard this a lot. Did you get that sense from from like just as far as the pulse of the players that maybe it had been so long since there had been a stoppage that... I mean, and I guess this is understandable. Could they even understand the scope of this when you've never lived through anything like that? In other words, were those veteran players onto something? Because now that I look back at it, it sure seems like they might have been.
1: Well, I think that was always a concern during my tenure there that you know, part of a lot of what I did was formulating internal communications activities and opportunities, things that would never see the light of day. Uh, but how do we inform and educate the next generation? How do we make that young player know who walks into a system uh, who, you know, may never, wasn't even born during that last labor stoppage? Uh, How do we get them to understand that what they have, the sport that they're walking into economically with a $550,000 minimum contract and arbitration and some of these benefits and perks, you know, the pension benefits, the health benefits, how did they get them? Uh, and, and what, what will it take to protect them or how easy could it be to lose them? And a lot of that's through information, right? It's through education. It's through uh, solidarity through communication. It's through uh, educating the classes. You know, as Marvin Miller you know, used to say, you don't get solidarity by saying you need to have solidarity. You get solidarity by you know, having an informed and educated membership. Uh, and so the majority of uh, what most people do at the union in you know in addition to everything else it does uh, the greatest emphasis is on that piece of making sure the young players are aware the older players have heard the stories they've uh, you know they help uh, educate the next generation you know before a year or two before he passed away you know I had Marvin Miller the age of 90 92 in the office and for a couple of hours with a few breaks in between you know I had him share a lot of his insights uh, and not necessarily about you know the historical pieces of what he went through, but more the atmosphere that he walked into without a union in place, uh, and what he needed to do to uh, to build the union uh, uh, in front of some skeptical eyes of ballplayers who weren't necessarily union backers, uh, with the with the with the goal of using that material to educate guys who will come five years from now, twenty years from now. Uh, in Marvin's own words. And so the players have heard those stories, they've seen those videos, they read them through internal communications uh, and it's that passing of the torch, right? So I think when push comes to shove, the players will be there. There is, uh, and will always be, I think, I hope solidarity uh, on these topics. But from the union's perspective right now, this is a teaching moment, right? The young players who weren't born, who don't know, really now know if they didn't know that this is a business. Uh, this is a, an immediate wake-up call because there could be some young players who said, I don't understand why we're not playing, right? Uh, I don't. And they, I'm sure they all got an education <laughs> as to why, uh, based on you know, some of the things and more uh, that I'm sharing. Uh, I'm sure the young players are saying, oh, I get it. I understand. Yeah, these things weren't handed to us. They were games lost. They were players who lost careers. There were players who lost thousands, if not millions of dollars. So we could have the things that we have today. So I have an obligation not to give in on this issue because I'm that. if I do, I'm going to leave this game worse off than it was given to me. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be part of that generation.
2: Do you worry about what this labor dispute is going to do to the health of the sport?
1: I think at the end of the day, as I said in my opening kind of comment, I think it's disappointing that – baseball didn't embrace this opportunity because and i don't think you can put a price tag on this so uh, the promotional opportunity the free advertising free marketing so to speak is invaluable right that they had available to them if if none of this infighting ever surfaced publicly and baseball had made an announcement after quietly agreeing with some type of economic system that paid the players a prorated portion and whether or not you know um, the difference between what they could afford to pay this year and what was left on the table in terms of unpaid guaranteed portions of their contract could have been deferred, uh, or or uh, adequately swapped out with other, some other form of compensation, whether it's equity in the franchises or lifetime health care or whatever something of equal or greater value, and all of that could have taken place behind closed doors. They come out holding hands, saying, "Hey, Fourth of July, we are there." The marketing value of that would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars Uh, and that's a missed opportunity. So uh, I think coming out of it at the end of the day, they will be bruised. Uh, There's going to be a lot of bitterness from the fan. We see it right now in social media and the reaction, Uh, but from an owner's perspective, uh, they don't really care about that too much because if they can gain some economic concessions here, that's what it's all about. For them, it's a business and uh, they're, they're willing to be public enemy number one. They're willing to damage and bruise their sport because history shows us you know, the fans will come back. Is there some attrition? Is there some damage? There might be. Does it linger? There might be some, some of it that lingers. But in the long run, if they can get a major economic uh, concession, even if it's just in the short term here, to get the players to take a major discount from what's owed in their contracts, that's a win for them. They'll take the bad PR, that's a win because the major revenue streams are still gonna come in. Uh, So they are willing to take that. The players, players usually, they align with the the fans. Players, the heart, they're fans of the game, they wanna play. Uh, But they've been educated on these issues to understand that yes, they play a game, but that game is big business. This isn't little league baseball, it's not high school baseball, it's not college baseball, it's not AAA, this is major league baseball. Billions of dollars are at stake, And if you give in on some of these concessions, you are going to regret it. Uh, And that's where we get the players kind of digging in their heels. And clearly uh, some owners, based on the proposals we see, clearly there are some owners who just don't want to play unless they get some drastic discount on the labor.
0: Greg, you, you said something there. The owners are willing to be public enemy number one, yet every time there has been a dispute really pretty much for all time, as far as labor goes, the fans take the side of the owner and they crush the players. Crush the players. And and it's reflected in the coverage, okay? Quite frankly, it's always been more sympathetic to the team side than to the player side. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, historically, <laughs> and also, why does that it's, endure now?
1: Yeah, I, I think... I see maybe less of it, although it's still there. Uh, where there are people who, through through people like yourself and Andy and others, and social media, there are fans who kind of get it and they understand the economic piece. But uh, just that there are players who don't want to get into the weeds of the economics. Fans don't want that. Right? They just want their baseball. They just want to play this game. Uh, <laughs> they don't. They don't understand right. or want to sympathize. And the one thing and I've I've been in professional sports for almost forty years. Uh, and I've seen what athletes have gone through. I worked in hockey on the team side. So I know what the team go through. I know the pressure of generating local revenue. I've been there. I've been responsible for that. And I see the player side uh, being on the union thing. But There's one thing, and maybe you guys have the same feeling or not, after working in the industry, as long as you have. The one thing that bothers me to this day, and it always bothered me from maybe the first time I ever walked into Uh, The dressing room when I worked for the New York Islanders to see what these guys went through to play the stitches and the broken jaws and, and everything they did. And then people say it's a privilege to play. It's not a privilege to play. You know, even the players say, hey, I'm privileged to play this game. It's not a privilege. They've worked harder than anybody else to be the best in the world at what they do. And it's because of them. They are the product that baseball generates $10 billion. There's no privilege. But the public sees it as, hey, I played Little League Baseball. It's like getting into the batter's box and swinging and playing baseball. These guys are privileged. They should be willing to play for a dollar. It's a baseball game. Uh, and that's the one thing I don't I, – I think people just think they're privileged. They're spoiled. They get paid millions to play a boys' game. Uh, and, and they are playing a game at that level. It's not a boys' game. It's big business. And because they are the ones generating that revenue – they're entitled to get their fair share of that. The public doesn't want to see it that way, consciously or subconsciously. They think that professional athletes, with the exception of maybe basketball players, because you've got to be born seven feet, or football players. Uh, but for baseball players, they look like the average Joe. And I think from a uh, public mm-hmm. perception, they just want to see these guys play baseball. You know, Don't ask for a lot of money. Just go and play. You're privileged. Uh, so I think that's a big hurdle for the players it always has been that's why we encourage the players you know don't take that battle public because you can't win it but if you are go in with your eyes open knowing that you know especially in the social media age yeah you can tweet something that is pro player and you might be accurate but no 90 percent of the reaction you're going to get if not higher they're going to trash you they're going to come at you and they're going to spew venom in your way especially now with everything that's going on in the world with the pandemic and the social issue issues. you know, Nobody wants to see a baseball player out there publicly talking about how he's being taken advantage of economically in a negotiation. Baseball knows that. Baseball knows they have the players on that hot seat uh, from the public. Right. It's up to the union to convince the players or make sure the players know, distance yourself from the public emotional piece of this because at the end of the day, it has no bearing and should have no bearing on a decision-making.
2: Now it, it, you know it's 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 interesting because like Blake Snell kind of you know says a, he kind of sounded like a, a bit dopey when he was talking through his approach on a Twitch stream, and somehow that becomes a four-day news cycle where people are writing columns. So there's like his message messaging wasn't great, but the substance was right. And meanwhile, Bill DeWitt, the owner of the Cardinals, says like just an absurd thing that owning a baseball team isn't profitable, and it just like sort of passes in, in <laughs> yeah, the night, yeah. uh, you know, and no one cares. But you know, it's interesting because you, you said something that that I that I have known. Uh, Instinctually, but hadn't really sussed out, right? And it was that fans do not want to hear about this. Fans don't follow sports to follow labor battles, and I think that's a pretty reasonable stance for a fan to have. This is entertainment; we watch this to distract us from the garbage in our day-to-day existence, right? So, like, is it the player's responsibility to get fans to understand their side? Is it? Should they just not be public about it? Like, because you know, I think about you know, just like my 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 stepdad. He's a huge Phillies fan, you know, and sometimes we'll talk about what's going on, and he'll just say like, "I don't care. I just want to watch baseball." I don't, like, I, I don't care if the owners are more in the wrong. I just want to watch baseball. And, like, he's not wrong to feel that way. Like, if, you, you know, if, he, if he was taking, like, some sort of uh, you know, morality exam or something, he you know, like, he would side with the players. But he has a job and a life, and he just wants to watch the Phillies at night. And, and so I'm just wondering, like, what do you think is the union's responsibility in changing that, uh, that sort of philosophy, if it is at all?
1: You know, I know when you're when you're living in it, and part of my job with some, although not all, but some of the staff or whatever and players, the MLBPA was, you know, about winning that public relations battle or having a voice. Or why do they think the same way? You know, not to reiterate what we're talking about here, uh, but you know, how can we have our voice? And uh, and you say to the player, you know, we understand that, but you have to detach yourself from the public sentiment because A, to the earlier point, you're not gonna win the argument. You can try, but you're just gonna come off as whining and defending something that the fans don't really care about. Uh, what you wanna do is focus on your solidarity, right? Focus on the education of the unit. Make sure the players understand, all of the players understand as to why because the union's taking the positions it's taken uh, and why you may not wanna be out there publicly uh, because at the end of the day, you know, as Donald was famous for always saying, you know, what the union does, the union can't go out in the street and take straw polls and then base its negotiating stance on what the public thinks. They just can't do that. It's a legal union. It's a recognized union. It has a fiduciary responsibility to its members to represent them to the best of its capabilities. If for some reason the union strikes a deal with Major League Baseball that says they did that out of public sentiment – you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the union could be sued by its members to say, hey, you didn't do what was right for us. You did something based on public relations. And that hurt me, that cost me my career, that cost me millions of dollars. Um, you know, so we get the fact, especially in the social media age, we get the fact that the players are going off feel like targeted, like nobody's on their side, that nobody can appreciate uh, what it is they're trying to communicate and how can we change that. Uh, and you can try, right? You can spend a lot of resources, uh, and the unions don't have a lot of resources. They don't have Major League Baseball's resources. They don't own a network. They don't have 30 PR people in different clubs and they don't have the media uh, at their fingertips. Uh, you know, so putting all that effort in would be nice, but at the end of the day, even if the public sentiment changed, it shouldn't change what the union does. So it's almost a wasted resource. You know, Focus the energy somewhere else, more tangible, something more concrete, that's gonna get you to where you need to be as an organization, not to try to win points with the fans. Uh, You can't do that. Um, That's kind of been the union's history. The one thing the union has always done though, in that regard, uh, is always said, you know, we don't have gag orders. You're free to go out and say whatever you wanna say, Uh, but just try to, uh, before you go out public, try to be informed. Don't offer an uninformed opinion about something. If you're not so sure, contact your player, contact the union. Uh, but we also tell them that, you know, or told them, uh, be careful, be careful going out there because you're going to put a target on your back. If you're willing to carry that, go it, go for it. But if you're going to be sensitive to it, Mm -hmm. just stay away, keep it behind closed doors.
0: Greg, you'd mentioned earlier so much of what your job was, what during your time at the union was internal communications, trying to educate players. When you look at a clubhouse, you got players from everywhere. Right, you got players from Latin America, you got players from Asia, uh, even the players from the United States are coming from very different backgrounds um, because of the way the sport has uh, evolved. Like at the youth level, a lot of times you've got to have a lot of money now to play ball, but also because of uh, you know the sports history in certain regions of the country, like you got players that come from there that might not be as well off that are that are have made it anyway. So you've got. A really wide swath of people that you're trying to talk to. Uh, How difficult was that? How do you navigate crafting a message when you know that there are people uh, not only of different parts of this country, but of of different cultures altogether that you're trying to reach? How difficult was that?
1: Uh, On the surface, it seems very difficult. And it's always challenging, right? Because of all those things you you described and all those the dynamics of a, of a locker room that you that you see. Uh, you, you guys know that the union goes and meets with every team during spring training uh, where the executive director, in this case, you know, Tony Clark gets up and he, he gives kind of the state of the union, talks about things relative to the sport, what's hot, maybe something market by market, club by club. Uh, but when he's done, there are kind of, for lack of a better term, little breakout sessions, right? So the union has invested heavily in bringing on uh, Latin, Spanish-speaking uh, former players and staff. Um, so after Tony's done or the executive director's done, there'll be a breakout for the Latin players to make sure they understood uh, what was going on and what was discussed. Then there's going to be another uh, breakout for all the zero to three players uh, who were just you know, learning the system. And there'll be uh, some topics addressed in a little Q&A for that group. And then there'll be a, a session for the players who might be emerging uh uh, to be arbitration uh, eligible, so they know what to expect. So there are breakout groups within the locker room setting during those meetings that address the issue you just addressed. So there's one-on-one communication. Uh, relationships are built. So during the season, they now have a name, a face, a person, and the contact. Uh, so you know it is a group of 1,200 uh, players, but at the end of the day, so much of the communication is actually one-to-one, uh, addressing each individual group of player
0: now, this is it's funny like i i just never knew like until you started talking about like your your duties then like just how you know how much of this really was education and reaching out and, and all the things you do. i mean i knew it in that i would see people out at the park right like i i know that these things were going on i just think i don't know if i understood truly just like you know, some of the challenges involved in it, which is, I I think is, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, you know, and speaking of which, like I, and I want to ask this before, before we go, but, you know, do you miss being in that day to day? And like, tell us what you're doing now, obviously, because it seems like you're doing some cool stuff, but also, uh, I don't know, do you miss the day to day grind of being in the game?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been asked that, especially with kind of this issue popping out there. And, and, you know, I don't know, I think maybe it's, um, I have a misfiring wire, <laughs> but I do like a good crisis. I do like a good fight play like that. I like to you know, do my best to defend uh, the folks I work for. Uh, so I kind of miss the day-to-day right now. You know, use a hockey cliche, you know, the gloves would be off and you'd be digging in and going toe-to-toe, I'm doing a lot of it behind the scenes, uh, not to be quoted, but trying to get your message out there and educate and inform the media and others, uh, you know, uh, responding to things and being a little proactive in other areas. So I missed that adrenaline rush. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's in my blood. I did it for 40 years almost. Uh, but, uh, what I'm doing today is when I left the union a couple of years ago, uh, I was just getting up to that point in my age, uh, where I, I, I made a commitment to myself when I was, uh, I have a degree in sport management from U.S. Amherst and, uh, uh at my age, there were no people like me ahead of me. We were kind of the first students who were in college studying sport management around when I was in the late 70s and very early 80s. Uh, there were only two or three schools in the country that offered the programs. Uh, uh, so we were kind of pioneers. And I remember sitting in a couple of classrooms and the professors, they were good, God bless them. you know They were teaching us these subjects, uh, but it was clear they didn't have much, if any real life experience. And I don't know, but like a little light went off in my head, you know, maybe my first or second year studying this stuff, that if I was ever lucky enough to carve out a career in the industry, and we were always told that we would never get a job in the industry, that's how tough it was, uh, that we were wasting money even back then, but hey, if you're gonna do it, we're gonna try to educate you on it. So I made a personal vow that if I was ever able to carve out a career, I would save a portion of my useful work life to give back to students who want to follow in the footsteps of those people who, you know, kind of joined me in getting out and turning this into a big business. It was mom and pop, uh, and then you know, it just a coincidence of timing. But when I graduated in 1983, it was the dawning of the real first digital age in, in the form of desktop computers. Uh, you know, they weren't there before '83, uh, and that was you know what opened the door for me to embrace that technology. And then in '86. Uh, when I was at the New York Islanders we became the first franchise in America to put all our games exclusively on cable TV uh, the whole rsN boom was born on Long Island with cable vision sports channel and the New York Islanders and then uh, that changed the industry that team which was you know a four-time Stanley Cup champion was you know the preeminent franchise in America this cable TV thing uh, turned this rsN thing into a huge revenue producer that was Duplicated around the country, and that was it. You know, it was off to the races in terms of taking the business from the mom and pop era to the era we're in today, which is in the kind of hyper commercialization era where it is big business. And so, I wanted to, uh, you know, having been fortunate to ride that whole wave, I wanted to sh- save this portion of my career to uh, to give back to students. And so, in addition to my consulting work through PowerX, I'm also the undergrad sport management program director and a full-time lecturer at Adelphi in Garden City on Long Island, uh, where I can bring a lot of the subject matter to life. Right? I can talk good theory about marketing in sports, or public relations in sport, or labor relations in sport, uh, sales and promotions. All of these things I am, you know, I have experience with because when I started in the industry, you know, professional team the Islanders, we may have had twenty employees. Today they probably have two hundred employees. Um, so you know I wanted to save this part part of my career to uh, take that theory and teach the students that theory, but with what really happens behind the scenes, how it really works in the industry, and having had the benefit of working on the club and the labor side, I think I offer the students a very unique perspective.
0: Well, and clearly over the lot la- this time it showed and, and you know, really appreciate you coming on again, Greg, and, and sharing your insights of, you know, here at the biggest week in baseball, right, Andy?
2: <laughs> I just, what are we doing? What are, what are we, like, I mean, we're just, like, as an industry, we are just going full Charlie Brown, you know, Lucy pulling the football out away from us, like, every week. Like, whatever.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's the owners
2: don't want to pay less than what it costs to play a 54-game season or whatever, a forty eight game season. So until the union moves off that point, like we're not gonna get a deal. And like every week it's like, oh, maybe this week there will be, you know, some progress. No, here's what'll happen is the owners are gonna send another proposal tomorrow, Friday, that's not gonna be close and still gonna ask I mean, you have the Commissioner of Baseball going on ESPN last night and saying the players need to back off their uh, demand for 100% of their salaries over the pro rata, even though he knows that they're not going to do that. He's doing that solely to put pressure on the players through the public. It's just like, what are we doing? What are we doing?
1: Yeah, yeah and, and and in all of that, right, you have to kind of sift through all of the noise, right, all the white noise that comes with it, and zero in on the why, right? And and there's a motive here. And Rob, you know, and, and, and I like Rob. I've known Rob a long time. Uh, in some ways I feel bad for Rob because I clearly don't think this is Rob's decision, right? This is Rob. It's hard to imagine owners. Rob they hire Rob him.
2: Manfred wanting to go on TV and, and just make baseball look bad. I, it's hard to imagine that's, that's his right. plan. And, right. And, right. And Rob,
1: before he was commissioner, was the one who knew, right. he knew more about the union and the way players think probably than a lot of players knew how they thought or should think. Uh, he, know, he knows, he knows, what the hot topics are, and for these proposals to contain the elements that they could contain, you know, you clearly get the sense, I clearly get the sense that Rob is just the messenger here, and that there's some very strong, powerful owner or group of owners who just do not want to play unless they get a very cheap product uh, to put on the field and not have to pay them. And, and I think they're willing not to play, but do it in a way that hopefully paints the players as being the bad guys, uh, that they're the ones who don't want to play. And I guess they do have the number that they're willing to put pay in terms of prorated portion. And if the players don't give in, that's what you'll get. And I hope the players don't get blamed for that. Uh, it's going to be because there were certain owners or an owner who says, you know what, it's just not it's just not financially doesn't make sense for me. I don't want to do it. I could do it, but why should I take on those losses? I don't want to do it. And that group, again, they hire Rob. They could fire Rob. So Rob is just delivering the water for a group or a group of owners here. That's my opinion.
0: Well, now I got to say this, like, and, and I'm going to call back to something that you'd said earlier before we go. But historically, when you look at 94 and the lead up to it, uh, it sounds like you're describing a situation with the owners as far as different interests that we saw leading up to that stoppage, okay? There were clearly mm-hmm. some people who were more into getting a salary cap into the sport, and there were other owners who were fine with it the way that it was. Um, and and by the way, this I, I only recently learned this. when they, If they had gone through with the cap that they'd produ- uh, pr- uh, proposed, 21 of the 28 teams at the time would have been over it. Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> 21 of the 28. But, uh, yeah. you know, I... I, I when you look back at, at, at the historical dynamic of it, are, are we seeing this again? Because like you said the labor piece was partly because it wasn't perceived that the owners were trying to break the union. Yet when you look at this negotiation, one of the first proposals was literally something that would have pit older players against younger players. That smells like someone trying to break a union. Uh, do you see it that way? Was, was that offer, in your view, perceived as something that was trying to break a union?
1: Uh, I, I'm not sure that was the sole intent, but I think that could have been a very welcome byproduct for MLB if they managed to achieve both. Right, got their economic concessions and created a lot of infighting among the bargaining unit. Um, I don't think, you know, I think if they're going to try to break the union, they would probably have more time and a more more um, strategic opportunities to do that during collective bargaining than this negotiation. I just think that was a happy byproduct if it came from it. That was a system that they wanted to have all these players take you know, such a great reduction and and, and and all of that. I mean, you know, going back and again, there's, there's so many layers to this that you just will never understand or know why they are taking this position uh, other than the general sense that yes, some clubs generate so much money through the gate that they cannot do this. But we also don't know, you know, not every ownership's created equal, right? Not every owner's created equal. Not every owner has the same deep pockets or the same wealth. Some owners might have uh, the banks knocking on the door or saying, hey, if you can't pay the debt now, you've got to rewrite the debt and the interest is going to cripple you. Uh, And not to say this is going to happen, but uh, I don't want to get too far uh, ahead of myself here, but what if some teams look at their financial situation and it might be, they may have leveraged themselves to do other things uh, and use the team as that funding source. And now they're in a bind, right? Now they're in a bind and if they play, now they're gonna go further in debt because they may have some players who are making 25, $30 million a year. And maybe, maybe it would force them to have to consider some reorganization. And I don't wanna use the word, I throw it around loosely, bankruptcy. Uh, and i don 't know that to be the case, uh, but from the player 's perspective, if a team was to declare bankruptcy, you know they 're the biggest creditors you know so for a player to take or or agree to take less than what his contract provides him would mean as a creditor, he would be owed less uh, whereas uh, you know if somebody 's owed three hundred million dollars over the next ten years and the team goes bankrupt uh, and the value of that franchise is a billion dollars, well that player. In all likelihood, may end up becoming half owner of the team.
2: Well, that that was this uh, sort of the theory that your uh, your cousin Scott Boris had raised in a in a letter with his, <laughs> um, with his clients that you know the, that was published by the Associated Press. Just basically how team owners have used the value of their franchise to uh you know basically make other purchases or leverage themselves in other ways and the players aren't uh you know incentivized to bail them out because of that you know like it's not their job to save the owners from the business decisions they've made and how those you know may backfire or not
1: right and and not and again these this is maybe an apples to oranges comparison in so many ways but if
2: you follow hockey in any sense you know who owns the Pittsburgh Penguins? I assume Mario Lemieux, but I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and don't? why does he own? Them? That's great. Yeah. Wow, good for me. Why does he own them? Uh, did they sell him equity when he was a player? No, they were they were going to declare bankruptcy. They owed him a long term okay. guaranteed
1: contract, and as the number one creditor or uh, that they owed, he ended up saying, "You know what? I'm not taking a discount on my pay. Uh, I'll just take equity in the franchise."
2: Ah interesting
1: and it became i think majority owner of the penguins well, good for him wow
2: that's nice well,
0: we ended a nice story yeah that's nice good for maryland greg <laughs> thanks again man this was awesome thank you for joining us um you know hope my pleasure thanks for having me yeah and uh you know andy hopefully we can talk about uh something else next week the biggest week in the history of baseball um but until then I'm Mark Carrigg, Senior Writer of The Athletic. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Scrum. Talk to you next week.